The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the argument for emojis as folklore, the top emojis of 2021, and why an emoji reference site is being archived in the Library of Congress. Plus, it turns out that gray hair can return to its original color, sometimes and temporarily. And waterbeds didn't fully go away after the early 90s. Their main consumer base just shifted to cows. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Did you know that emojis are archived in Library of Congress? Not just emojis, the top website that explains variations on and updates to emojis has been being actively archived by the U.S. Library of Congress's Web Cultures Web Archive since 2017. As the site itself put it, quote, Why does a site that informs you that eggplant means penis belong in a government-funded library? End quote. But even further, why is one of the subject headings that the website is filed under in the archive folklore and mythology? Emojipedia's senior emoji lexicographer, Jane Solomon, explained it in an excellent piece from earlier this year. But to back up first, Emojipedia is a reference site where you can look up the official name and all platform variations of emojis. It's a voting member of the Unicode Consortium, which makes the emojis, and was founded in 2013 by Jeremy Burge. It's a great place to go when there are announcements about new upcoming emojis from Unicode or various platforms. For any explainers on questions you may have about emojis and to find out which emojis are most popular at any one time. And the Library of Congress Web Cultures Web Archive, which began in 2014 and is housed inside the American Folklife Center, is tasked with, per the website, quote, documenting the creation and sharing of emergent cultural traditions on the web. The mission of the American Folklife Center is to document traditional cultural forms and practices, and the proliferation of smartphones, tablets, and wireless internet connections has positioned networked communication as a space where people increasingly develop and share folklore. This collection, co-curated with scholars who study digital culture, captures a set of websites that document elements of the various digital vernaculars enabled through networked and computer-mediated communication. These sites comprise a wide range of everyday communication enacted by communities to create a shared sense of the world. The Web Culture's Web Archive offers a representative sampling of the collective cultural creation and self-documentation characterizing vernacular spaces on the World Wide Web, and like many of those spaces, is in process, end quote. Now, in addition to Emojipedia, some of the other websites in the archive include Know Your Meme, Urban Dictionary, Creepypasta, Slashdot, Jiffy, Newsgrounds, Metafilter, and a whole bunch of fanfiction, cosplay, and other fan spaces. 
Now, some folks may sigh that a My Little Pony fan site for bronies is being archived in the Library of Congress as representative of American folklore, but... Well, it is folklore. The American Folklife Center defines folklife as, quote, familial, ethnic, occupational, religious, regional. Expressive culture includes a wide range of creative and symbolic forms such as custom, belief, technical skill, language, literature, arts, architecture, music, play, dance, drama, ritual, pageantry, handicraft. These expressions are mainly learned orally, by imitation, or in performance and are generally maintained without benefit of formal instruction or institutional direction. End quote. Now, I have long been interested in the idea of internet and fan communities as a type of modern folklore. You know, we tend to think of folklore as geographically based, or if not, maybe religiously based, and often passed down within families, and definitely as old customs dating back generations, not something we're watching happen in real time. And one example that goes against that idea would be the LGBTQ plus community. You know, the folklore of that community is not taught to one another by families, since rarely are LGBTQ plus kids raised by LGBTQ plus parents, or is it taught in schools, since LGBTQ plus information and history is legislated out of many curriculums, but the, quote, creative and symbolic forms of custom, belief, technical skill, language, ritual, pageantry, etc., end quote, are passed down and maintained in that informal way that the American Folklife Center describes. And as the web continues, we've seen how various cultures and communities have endured over the decades. I've said before that the staying power of emojis has personally surprised me, but emojis and other expressive culture on the internet is a part of our culture and our folk life just as much as anything happening offline in the meat world. Quoting Emojipedia's Jane Solomon, John Finn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center, provided context on how emojis fit into historical traditions. Emojis are expressive culture, both in terms of their creation and their use. Even though emojis have a commercial origin to some extent, their meanings emerge from vernacular or grassroots cultural groups in the digital world, said Finn. Archivists at the American Folklore Center view emojis as folklore because people use them in unique and emergent ways to communicate with each other, which develops new meanings that draw on in-group humor or patterns of communication, according to Finn. The ability of emojis to generate creative expression places them within the folkloric tradition. The folklorists are generally interested in the dynamic between continuity and change with cultural phenomena or traditions, Fenn said. After all, if emojis remained the same over time, would there be a need to archive them at all? But emojis are constantly in flux, whether this is related to emerging meanings, altered designs, or the addition of completely new emoji code points bestowed upon the public by the Unicode Consortium each year. Finn explained that it's important to have a diachronic record of emojis. Since so much digital culture tends to be ephemeral, there's a good reason to track things like emojis over time to see how they change, both aesthetically and semiotically. End quote. Solomon asked Finn whether he thinks emojis will stick around for a long time, and he brought up how digital culture doesn't tend to stick around as long as its analog counterparts, 
Which I mostly agree with, and is part of why the persistence of emojis continues to surprise me. But I do wonder if emojis are some other beast, you know, a deeper way of communicating beyond other internet trends like reaction gifs and lolcats. You know, for one, we do see usages of emojis going in and out of style, or varying across communities and populations. Take, for example, Gen Z thinking that the rest of us are super cringe for using the crying laughing emoji all the time because they have a much more metaphorical way of using emojis. But the usage of emojis at all, no matter how one uses them or changes how one uses them over time, persists. And speaking of the changing meaning of emojis over time, earlier this month, Unicode released data on the most frequently used emojis of 2021. And despite more of us learning that it's no longer cool to use that crying laughing face or the tears of joy face, it still completely dominates emoji usage. According to the Unicode Consortium, it accounts for 5% of all emoji usage. Second place is the simple red heart, but there is apparently a steep cliff after that. Here's some more stats for you. 92% of the world's online population uses emojis, and the top 100 most popular emojis make up 82% of all emoji shares. Top 100 out of 3,663 emojis to pick from. And this sort of adds up when you remember that there are 258 flag emojis, but people tend to just use the one relevant to them, if any, so despite being the largest category, it's used the least. The Unicode Consortium notes that the most popular emojis tend to be either face or hand emojis or objects with both literal and non-literal meanings. Like the flex bicep can mean a lot of things about strength, success, showing off, and literally going to the gym for arm day. Meanwhile, emojis like the clutch bag and flat shoe have less non-literal applications so far. That's one of the fun parts about watching how emoji usage changes over time. You know, people are always applying meaning to them, like Fenn and Solomon were saying. As Solomon wrote, quote, There's this prevalent belief that a word or a meaning of a word only becomes real after it gets entered into a dictionary, but the realness of a word or the value of a cultural object exists long before the process of formal documentation. End quote. And the meaning people are connecting to various emoji and how that reflects our present times can sometimes be seen in this frequency data. For example, some emojis that increased in frequency from 2019 through 2021, aka pre and during pandemic, the crossed fingers, the person shrugging, the pleading face, the birthday cake, the house, the shopping cart, the thermometer, and the syringe. And some that decreased include the fist bump, the peace sign, the smiling face with hard eyes, the headphones, the snowflake, the police car light, and the airplane. Now back over at Emojipedia, they also do an informal emoji awards each summer on World Emoji Day, which is July 17th, because, you know, that's the date on the emoji. For more on that, you can listen to the segment I did on it in 2020, link in the show notes. But this year, the public voted for the syringe as the most 2021 emoji. No big surprises there. While the Lifetime Achievement Award went to... Not the crying while laughing face, that got second. No, the Dark Horse first place winner ended up being the loudly crying face, so the one with the tears flooding straight down. 
Does being a finalist in the Lifetime Achievement Awards mean it's finally time to retire? Looking at you crying while laughing emoji. Anyways, for more emoji fun, Jason shared this as a quick link on Kotki.org earlier this month, and it is excellent. It's a website from Javier Borquez called Emoji to Scale, which has every emoji lined up in order of size, with info about its real-world measurement listed beneath it. And for a website that basically just reminds me that a paperclip is bigger than a tooth, it's oddly captivating to scroll through. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. So there have been a lot of articles over the last year about widespread hair loss that's been occurring during the pandemic, some caused by COVID-19 directly and a lot more by the stress of living through the pandemic. But others might have experienced another stress-related hair side effect, graying hair. If you saw some strands of gray appear over the last year and think it could have been related to stress, there might be good news for you. Building on decades of scientific suspicion that it could be possible, a study published earlier this year in the journal eLife has indicated that gray hairs can naturally regain their color. It was a small study and focused more on showing that it is indeed a real phenomenon versus tips and tricks for making it happen on your own scalp, but it's intriguing nonetheless. Quoting Scientific American, Around four years ago, Martin Picard, a mitochondrial psych biologist at Columbia University, was pondering the way our cells grow old in a multi-step manner, in which some of them begin to show signs of aging at much earlier time points than others. This patchwork process, he realized, was clearly visible on our head, where our hairs do not all turn gray at the same time. It seemed like the hair, in a way, recapitulated what we know happens at the cellular level, Picard says. Maybe there's something to learn there. Maybe the hairs that turn white first are the more vulnerable or least resilient, end quote. He then had the idea to find people who had single hairs that were both gray and colored, calculate how fast their hair grew, and then pinpoint when the hair began turning gray and see if that coincided with any kind of stress trigger in the individual's life. Picard managed to find 14 people ages 9 to 65 of various genders and ethnicities, although mostly white, who had strands of hair, individual hairs, with both gray and color to them. Quoting again, The researchers then developed a technique to digitize and quantify the subtle changes in color, which they dubbed hair pigmentation patterns along each strand. These patterns revealed something surprising. In 10 of these participants, who were between age 9 and 39, some graying hairs regained color. 
The team also found that this occurred not just on the head, but in other bodily regions as well. Picard said, This happens not just in one person or on the head, but across the whole body. He adds that because the reversibility only appeared in some hair follicles, however, it's likely limited to specific periods when changes are still able to occur. Most people start noticing their first gray hairs in their 30s, although some may find them in their late 20s. This period, when graying has just begun, is probably when the process is most reversible, according to study co-author Ralph Paz, a dermatologist at the University of Miami. In those with a full head of gray hair, most of the strands have presumably reached a point of no return, but the possibility remains that some hair follicles may still be malleable to change, he says, end quote. The study also confirmed, at least in some of their participants, the link between stress and graying hair. By figuring out exactly how long ago certain strands of hair started going gray and mapping that onto participants' lives, they figured out that one subject's strand of hair with a white segment happened when she was going through a marital separation. Another had five strands of gray hair that reversed back to Auburn when he went on a two-week vacation. But as Eva Peters, a psychoneuroimmunologist at the University Hospital of Gessen and Marburg in Germany, told Scientific American, while it's a well-conceptualized study, it was still a very small sample, so much more research will need to be conducted to confirm these findings. But nonetheless, Matt Caberlin, a biogerontologist at the University of Washington who was not involved in the study but did edit the paper, told Scientific American that this builds on other research that has been happening. He said, quote, What we're learning is that not just in hair, but in a variety of tissues, the biological changes that happen with age are, in many cases, reversible, and this is a nice example of that. End quote. While the whole idea of gray hair being at least temporarily reversible is very intriguing, Picard's got his sights set much higher. He sees the potential for one day analyzing strands of hair like one would rings on a tree, looking back to see what the effects of life events early on had on aging, which I guess then eventually could inform how to avoid some physical markers of aging if you wanted to, but then again, just giving someone the advice, hey, chill out isn't exactly practical. The other day, I stumbled on a Mental Floss article about a big question that has occasionally entered my mind, but always floated back out of it before I got around to looking it up. One of those questions that I feel a little uneasy about, because sometimes I almost feel like I made up the subject of the question. Like, most of the time, I forget it's something that ever existed, I'll go years conveniently forgetting about it, and then one day, the memory slaps me across the face, and I'm left wondering if it was really real or just a childhood fever dream. I'm talking about waterbeds. People used to sleep in waterbeds. My parents had a waterbed until I was about 10 years old. According to Mental Floss, at one point in the late 80s, one out of every four mattresses sold was a waterbed mattress. And then they were just gone. What happened to them? Well, after the initial counterculture niche and then commercial mainstreaming of the beds made them a $2 billion business, people just started getting tired of them. And waterbeds require a ton of work to set up and a fair amount of maintenance. You gotta run a hose into your bedroom to fill it up with hundreds of gallons of water, which is liable to leak at any time, and the frame required around it is exceptionally heavy. Plus, by the 90s, more traditional mattresses and other less maintenance-heavy innovations had been developed, like Tempur-Pedic, 
orthopedic and sleep number, because despite the sensual undertones of the waterbed, the pure trendiness, and how fun kids thought they were, a big selling point of waterbeds really was how comfortable they were and how great they were for your back, although that point is certainly debatable now. But newer mattress technology, quoting Mental Floss, offered softness and flexibility without making customers run a garden hose through their second floor bedroom window. End quote. So, waterbeds largely died out. You can still get them in some places, but they usually go by other names like flotation beds, since waterbed carries a bit of a stale stigma to it. But what really blew my mind about this whole waterbed thing is that there is one population who still uses them quite a bit. Cows. Yes, since the late 1990s, right around the time waterbeds fell out of favor with humans, many cows around the world have been happily dozing on waterbeds. Originally, they were resting on waterbeds that were straight-up designed for humans, which had a few pros. You know, most of them were large queen or king-sized beds, and especially as they took a downward turn in the market, were quite affordable. But soon, companies sprung up to produce specialized waterbeds for cows. Quoting a 2019 article from Modern Farmer, Cows, contrary to popular belief, don't stand up for their entire lives. And dairy cows, which tend to be very heavy and often sedentary, really shouldn't be standing up for long than necessary. Their weight puts a lot of strain on underdeveloped joints and muscles. One solution to this, obviously, is to give dairy cows time and space to graze, but one battle at a time. Starting in the early 2000s, one design of waterbed became dominant for dairy cows, a two-chambered mattress, with the second chamber specifically located to give extra support to a cow's knees, which are a sort of weak point. Aside from comfort, maximizing the time a cow is lying down is vital for milk production. Studies show that resting time is directly correlated with milk production. The more time spent lying down, the more milk the cow produces. While lying down, cows aren't sleeping. They're chewing cud and storing energy. And according to studies, blood flow increases by 20 to 30 percent in the udders while the cow is resting compared with standing. End quote. A team at the University of Missouri found that it takes a cow less time to lower themselves onto a dual-chambered waterbed compared to a common mattress. Less than five minutes compared to eight and a half. And yeah, it takes cows a long time to lie down. They do weigh about 1,500 pounds, after all. But that three and a half minutes is a big improvement in itself, in addition to the waterbeds being better for their joints and blood flow. As pretty much every farmer in every article I read about this said, happier cows, happier milk. So some farmers see the benefits in shelling out for better beds for their cows in order to get more and better milk. Man, forget those got milk mustache commercials. I'd have been way more convinced to buy milk if I was shown photos of dairy cows happily chilling out on waterbeds. So I mentioned it last week, but a reminder that we're taking this Thursday and Friday off for New Year's. I'll be back with another episode tomorrow, Wednesday, but just a heads up. And that's part of why I'm making all of this week's episodes extra long, to, you know, give you a little something more to listen to, maybe space them out, whatever you want to do. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 